0: are now listening to the January 22nd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Nearer to My God to Thee, the sermon, and equipping the saints. First, let's begin with Nearer My God to Thee.
1: It's John Bacchus from the program Nearer My God to Thee. What is the reason why we confess that we love Jesus? Is it because he gives us everything we want? If so, what would happen if he didn't allow us to have what we want? Would we stop confessing our love for him? It's very natural for us to confess that we love the Lord when everything is good and happy. However, it would not be easy to confess that we still love the Lord when everything is bad and miserable. However, when we are able to confess our love during these difficult times, it is a true confession of love. The well-known hymn, More Love to Thee, is about confessing that we love the Lord more, even during difficult situations. First, we'll listen to the hymn.
2: More love to thee, o Christ. More-
1: Here is the first verse of More Love to Thee. More love to Thee, O Christ, more love to Thee. Hear Thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to Thee. More love to Thee, more love to Thee. A woman named Elizabeth Payson Prentice wrote this hymn by confessing, This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to Thee. Prentiss was a pastor's wife. We'll see what kind of situation she was in when she made this confession through a drama.
3: Elizabeth Prentice was born in Portland in the 19th century as a pastor's daughter. Although her body was weak ever since she was young, she grew up to be a teacher at school and an author in her personal life. She lived a happy life she wrote a book titled Stepping Heavenward and it became a bestseller. When Prentice was 27 years old, she married a pastor named George Lewis. She stopped teaching and devoted herself to writing. After getting married, Elizabeth had two children and enjoyed her happy life. However, in 1865, after 11 years of marriage, she faced a great hardship in her life. At that time, A frightening, contagious disease that began in New York was spreading all over the states and it took the lives of children. Elizabeth lost both her children at the same time due to this illness. God, this is so difficult. I'm trying to understand your will. But the suffering that I'm going through is too burdensome. For me to handle. <laughs> I have lived all my life faithfully as your daughter until now. I became a pastor's wife and helped my husband's ministry. I have served and followed you with love and devotion until now. But what has happened? Why did you take both my children away in one day? <laughs> She was born as a daughter of a faithful pastor and served the Lord all her life. She then became a pastor's wife and diligently served the Lord. She couldn't accept the sudden sadness that came into her life. She couldn't understand how the Lord allowed her family, who faithfully served him, to suffer like this. She even began to feel betrayed by the Lord. There was not a day that went by without having tears in her eyes. She couldn't forget about the children she lost, so she often visited their grave and became depressed. After returning from the grave, she couldn't contain her sadness and began talking to her husband, Pastor George, while crying. Dear, how are we to live now? Our family has fallen apart. Now there is no hope. Everything has been torn apart. (laughs) Must we live our remaining days in sadness like this? (gasps) I can't live like this any longer. (laughs) Pastor George saw his wife crying out in sadness and quietly spoke to her while embracing her. Elizabeth, I know you are sad and I'm equally hurt. However, this is what I think. This is a good opportunity for everything we have preached, taught, and believed for a long time to be proven by our life. Just as we were more sympathetic and poured out more of our love when our young children were sick and suffering, our God loves His children who are facing hardship even more. I don't think God allowed our suffering to punish us. I believe it is a process for us to be used for His glory. Therefore, let's use this opportunity to follow the Lord's will and draw near to Him. Elizabeth was amazed at her husband's words. He had the same sadness of losing his children, but as a true servant of God, he overcame his sadness and was devoted to God. She was in awe of this. She gained courage from her husband's word and was determined to have a new start. She longed and prayed for the Lord to give her strength. She read the Bible and returned before the Lord. Then, her soul was comforted from the Lord's word. Then, she felt ashamed before the Lord. It's because she realized that she was focused on worldly things rather than spiritual things. She wrote about her feelings in a poem. Once, I only sought earthly joy. However, now I seek true peace and rest in you. Therefore, I only look to you. Lord, you give what is best. Let me desire you, O Lord. May this be my prayer. Uh
1: Elizabeth wrote a poem after she found comfort in the Lord and looked to the Lord again. This poem was buried in her notebook for 13 years. Later on, her husband, Pastor George, found this poem in her notebook. He was deeply moved when he heard that this poem was written after losing their children and going through the process of healing in the Lord. Therefore, he told other people about the poem and had them read it. Her poem was introduced in several places. A composer named William Doane read the poem and was inspired. He added a song to that poem on the spot, and the song, More Love to Thee, was born. Once earthly joy I craved, sought peace and rest. Now thee alone I seek, give what is best. This all my prayer shall be, More love, O Christ, to thee more love to thee, more love to thee. At times, God allows suffering and hardship. Behind all this, the Lord's good will of making us go nearer to Him through the suffering is hidden. His thoughts are not the same as our thoughts. At times, we may not understand His thoughts and plans. However, we have experienced His faithfulness, and we know that in any situation, we must trust Him and go nearer to Him. God will surely fulfill His pleasing will. Therefore. Just as Elizabeth confessed, we can also confess that we love Jesus more today. I hope you can confess that love and walk one step closer to him. I'll see you next week from Nearer My God to Thee.
0: Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is, Are You Tired? Come to Jesus. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David.
4: If you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to Mark chapter two and verse 23. What if Jesus came? to make supernatural rest a surprising reality in your life. Some of you might think, I doubt it, or I don't believe it. I doubt, or I don't believe, rest is possible amidst everything in my life in this world. And if that's you, whether you are a follower of Jesus, you're a Christian, or you're not, maybe this is your first time in church, I want to invite you anybody who's tired to listen particularly to this story in the book of Mark. Actually, it's two stories back to back. We're going to start in Mark chapter 2, verse 23, and read all the way into the beginning of chapter 3, verse 6. And I just want you, while we read through this, count how many times you see the word Sabbath. So that's the Hebrew word for rest in these two short stories. So we'll start with Mark chapter 2, verse 23, verse 23. Just count how many times you see the word Sabbath. And I'll try to point them out as we go along the way. So one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And he's talking about Jesus. As they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, but also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Chapter three, and again, Jesus entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with Herodians against him. How to destroy him. How about that? Like, what in these stories is worthy of being killed? Well, notice, in these two short stories, you see this picture of Sabbath rest, how many times? Seven times, right? Now let's get a little background here. This is a word in the Bible that goes all the way back to the beginning of creation. I won't have time to turn to all these places, but let me just show you. The second chapter of the Bible tells us about how when the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them, on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and He rested. On the seventh day, from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. That word in the very beginning of the Bible is a word from which we get Sabbath in Mark chapter 2 and 3. So here in Genesis chapter 2, why would God tell us this? About him resting. After all, it's not like God ever gets tired, God is all powerful. And it's not like God can take a day off from upholding the universe. If God did that, we would cease to exist. Well, keep going to the next book of the Bible, and we'll start to see that God here was instilling a pattern into the very fabric of creation for all of us to follow. In Exodus chapter 20... Out of all 10 commandments, only one starts with the word remember. As God directs our attention back to Genesis 1 and says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And that word holy means set apart. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath, a day of rest to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. God says, I've created you, not just to work, yes, that, but I've created you to rest. And just think about that reality generally, because God didn't have to create you and me this way, right? Think about rest. Think about sleep. Why did God design us to need sleep? You and I sleep for about a third of our lives. A third of our lives is spent like we're dead. God did not have to do that. And we're made in His image. He doesn't sleep. So why do we have to sleep? Just think of all we could do, all we could accomplish, all we could experience and enjoy if we didn't have to sleep. So obviously there are reasons behind why God created us to need sleep or rest. And when you look in the Bible, you learn that one of the reasons... If not the primary reason that God has created us to need rest like this is to remind us that we are not God, that we are not all powerful, that we are not self-sufficient. I love how John Piper describes this. He said, sleep is a daily reminder from God that we are not God. Once a day, God sends us to bed like patients with a sickness. That sickness is a chronic tendency to think that we are in control and that our work is indispensable. And to cure us of this disease, God turns us into helpless sacks of sand once a day. How humiliating to the self-made corporate executive that he or she has to give up all control and become as limp as a suckling infant every single day. So with all that background in the Bible about God's design and desire for you and I to experience rest... We come to this story of Jesus walking with his disciples on the Sabbath day. His disciples are hungry, so they pluck some heads of grain to get something to eat. And some Pharisees are following them. And as soon as the disciples take that grain into their hands, the Pharisees say, why are you doing that? That's not lawful on the Sabbath. And we've got to get into the minds of these guys. Remember, these are religious students, teachers, defenders of God's law, who tried to apply God's law to every single detail of life, believing that was the key to earning favor with God. They were what we would call legalistic They thought that life in a relationship with God, a good and right life before God, consisted in getting everything right, keeping all the balloons in the air. And they were meticulous about everything you needed to get right, creating all kinds of rules that went beyond even what the Bible said and imposing them on everybody else. They were zealous about putting a lot of balloons in the air and keeping them all in the air to the point where there were no exceptions so Jesus tells them this story about David in the Old Testament when he was in need, and he was hungry, going into the tabernacle, eating a piece of bread with his men, which was something reserved only for the priests to do. But it was okay in that instance because they were hungry, and that's just it. These Pharisees were missing the point of the law, and Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, God's command for our rest is for our good, not our misery, including God's command for us to rest. And I know this, Jesus says, because I'm the one who gave the command. I am Lord of the Sabbath. Now that was a massive statement. Jesus this man, Lord of the Sabbath, like in charge of the Sabbath day, Jesus is the Lord of rest. You realize what a shocking statement this was? It's why they wanted to kill him. Jesus just said, I'm the author of rest. I'm the ruler and the Lord of rest. And now we're getting to why this story was so revolutionary for these Pharisees to hear and why this is so revolutionary for you and me to hear because this story is making clear follow this that rest is not found in getting everything right in your life because if it is we are all hopeless aren't we who of us can get it all right living like we can is a recipe for unrest for unrelenting weariness for all the things we've already mentioned Trying to get it all right leads to worry and anxiety and stress and fear and frustration and failure and unfulfillment because you'll never get there. But what if rest is not found in getting everything right in your life? What if rest is found in entrusting everything in your life to Jesus as Lord? That is revolutionary truth. And I pray that God would give you eyes to see it, ears to hear it, and hearts to believe it. That you, right where you're sitting right now, can find supernatural rest for your soul in Jesus as Lord of your life. Let me put another picture in your mind, a biblical picture. It comes straight from Psalm 131. I think about a particularly challenging time in my life, I won't go into all the details here, but just a lot of confusion and temptation to worry and fear. And I remember reading Psalm 131, verse 1 and 2 in my quiet time one day, and it hit me like it was clear, like God just speaking this word over my heart. Follow this. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, things I can't understand, but... I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me." Do you see this biblical picture? Like a weaned child with its mother. Picture a baby sleeping in a mother's arms Not worried about anything in the world. Just totally content in a mother's arms. That kind of calm and that kind of quiet is what God desires for you and me. In the middle of it all. A calm and a quiet, a rest from worry and fear and whatever else. Now you might think, yeah, but I'm not sleeping through all these things in my life. Actually, I Actually, have to go to work or school and I have to engage with this relationship and I have to deal with this struggle and I want to do what God commands me to do. Yes, 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 do all of those things. But the point is, rest, calm, quiet is only possible in the middle of these things as you trust Jesus as the Lord of your life and the Lord over those things. Hear, hear what God's Word is teaching us. As you live, as I live, And I use this term, live, like think about all that life entails, physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, with school and work and family and friends and struggles and pandemic and whatever else. As you live, how can you rest? You can rest in Jesus' lordship over everything. The key to rest in this world is trust that Jesus is Lord over this world and everything in it including everything in our lives. Isn't, isn't this the picture of sleep? Psalm 127, verse 2. God gives to his beloved sleep rest. Why? Because they trust in him. Again, Piper is so helpful here. He writes, sleep is a parable that God is God and we are mere men. God handles the world quite nicely while a hemisphere sleeps. Sleep is like a broken record that comes around with the same message every day. Man is not sovereign. Man is not sovereign. Man is not sovereign. Don't let the lesson be lost on you. God wants to be trusted as the great worker who never tires and never sleeps. He is not nearly so impressed with our late nights and early mornings as he is with the peaceful trust that casts all anxieties on him and sleeps. As you live, you can rest in Jesus' lordship over everything in this world and everything in our lives. And you can rest in Jesus' love for you. So this is the beauty here in Mark chapter 2 of Jesus' simple concern for his disciples to have food on the Sabbath. All the more so in the second story of a man with a withered hand We don't know much more detail than that, but surely this affected everything in this man's life on every level. And these Pharisees cared more about getting everything right according to their rules than they cared about this man in need of healing. And Jesus was, remember what it said? He was filled with anger, grieving at the hardness of their heart. What a picture of emotion. He's angry that they would treat this man's needs so lightly, and he was grieved at how hard their hearts were. So concerned about their rules, getting everything right, that they lost sight of love. Don't do it. Don't do it. You can rest, rest, rest in this rock-solid reality that the one who is Lord over all is in love with you. This is the gospel. This is the greatest news in the world. It's the message at the center of scripture. We have all been created by God for ultimate rest in relationship with God. Problem is, we have all rebelled against God, which has led to unrest in our lives and unrest all around us in the world. But God has come to us in the person of Jesus. That's what Just a couple days ago, sharing with a very kind Muslim man from Senegal. God did not just send a prophet. God came himself in the person of Jesus. He lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial death on the cross for the sins of all who would trust in him. Then he rose from the grave, conquering sin and death. The greatest news in all the world is that God has made a way for us to experience rest from sin, from the penalty of sin, the price of sin in one sense now, and ultimately for all of eternity. In the words of Psalm 116, which I mentioned earlier, gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. So return, O my soul, to your rest. That's the picture that we have here in Psalm 116 of salvation. Why? For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. You have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. You have been given rest from eternal death. There is nothing beyond the power of God to give you rest. So find rest in Jesus' love for you. And not just that. So finally, as you live, and this is so key, rest in Jesus' life in you. There's a ton we could say here, but I need to draw this to a close. Let me just summarize by saying that for everyone who trusts in Jesus, who entrusts your life to Jesus as Lord, that means the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of rest, is dwelling inside of you. If there's one verse that summarizes the entire Christian life, I think it's Galatians 2:20. We've studied it before. And this is what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Christ. Let me read it, and then let's make the connection. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see that? Make the connection with the supernatural rest. We find in this verse, Jesus Christ the one who loved me so much that he gave his life for me on a cross, he lives in me. Which means that no matter what I find myself juggling at any point in my life, I have Jesus himself inside of me, helping me with everything I need. When I am weak, I have the strength of Jesus in me. When I am confused, I have the wisdom of Jesus in me. When I'm afraid, I have the power and courage of Jesus in me. When I'm alone, I have his spirit, his presence inside of me. When I'm anxious, I have the peace of Jesus inside of me. the Christian life, the life of realizing this in a wearying world to keep going back to the rest we have in Jesus in us, which is why when Matthew tells this story of these disciples picking grain on the Sabbath and Jesus healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, right before that, Matthew records Jesus saying to the crowds, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And then he tells the stories we've read in Mark today. The imagery here is powerful, as Jesus says, So weary and heavy-laden people, come into the yoke with me. It's the imagery. Picture two oxen linked together by a yoke. What you would do is you would pair a stronger ox with a weaker ox. And the stronger ox is able to carry that weaker ox along. Come into the yoke with me. Join your life with me. Find your strength in me. Find your wisdom in me. Find everything you need in me. And I will enable you to go through all of these things with a supernatural rest. Knowing, so let's come back to this picture. That Jesus is Lord over all these things. Jesus is Lord over our spiritual lives. He's Lord over our friendships. These things have scattered everywhere around this stage. It's gonna take a minute. He's Lord over the guilt we oftentimes feel. He's Lord over school and work. Jesus, Lord, over our family, all the relationships therein, our marriages, parenting, our singleness. He's Lord over every struggle we have, emotional struggle, physical struggle, mental struggle. He gives to his beloved sleep, Lord over rest, Praise God, Jesus is Lord over pandemics. COVID is not sovereign, God is sovereign. I had a couple down here that I'm about to take away from some kids, but I promise I'm gonna give you guys a balloon after this is all over, I promise. Oh no, oh no, don't do it. Let's do a handoff right over here. Lord over social media, Lord over what we eat and how we take care of our bodies, Lord over doubt and Lord over all fear. Thanks, bro. Like Jesus is the Lord. He holds all of these things in his hand. Like When you read 1 Peter 5 and it says, cast all your cares on me, it's because he is big enough for all of them. And he's not just Lord over them. The one who is Lord over them loves you and is absolutely committed to giving you everything you need for all of these things. At every moment, when you're in the middle of that struggle, when you're in that workplace or in that school, when you're walking through this or that conflict or tension, Jesus is right there with you. You're never, ever alone. He's Lord over it all, and he's alive in you. And when you realize who He is, and the yoke that you're brought into, then you realize no matter what this world throws at you, add some more balloons into it, Like you realize it is possible to have supernatural rest in the middle of it all. And can I just remind us? Yes, that's a reality in this world. But there's also coming a day when the Bible describes eternal rest. For all who trust in Jesus, yes, there is rest today, and then one day there will be no more sin, and there will be no more sorrow, and there will be no more struggles, and there will be no more tears. He'll wipe every single one of them away from our eyes. This is the hope we have. This world is not ultimately our home. And so we press on, we trust in him, in the yoke with him as we look forward to a day when eternal rest will be ours. Do you know that? Do you know that in your life? Do you know that in your life today? And do you know that day is coming for you? Let me ask you to bow your heads with me. Let me ask you this question. Do you, right where you're sitting right now, know Jesus as Lord as the Lord who has died on a cross for sins and risen from the grave and who reigns as Lord over all and do you know him as Lord of your life. You know him as Lord of your life. And if the answer to that question is not a resounding yes in your heart, then I want to invite you just right now in the quietness of your heart to say for the first time to Jesus, I trust in you. To say to God, I know that I have sinned against you. I've turned away from you. And that my soul will only find rest in restored relationship to you. For you to say today, I believe that Jesus is Lord, that he has died on a cross for my sins. He's risen from the grave in victory over sin. And that my soul can only find rest in Him. Would you express that to God now and as you do by faith to do exactly what we just said, to rest for the first time, your soul, in Jesus' Lordship, in Jesus' love, and Jesus' life now in you. And for all who know Jesus is Lord, you just be reminded in this moment, maybe to say to him, Jesus, I, I need rest in you. Amidst this or that in your life, just to lay it before Jesus and to say, Jesus, I need your rest. I need your strength. I need your wisdom. I need your help. I need your peace. I need your life in me. I want to experience life in the yoke with you. Jesus, there is no one like you. We exalt you as the Lord over rest and the Lord over sin and the Lord over death. You are the Lord of life. And we say together today, our souls are restless until they find their rest in you. We praise you for the rest you make possible for us. And we lay all these different things in our lives, not to minimize any of those things, like hard things that so many people are walking through, reasons for all kinds of exhaustion around this room. God, we lay them all before you, and we trust that you are Lord over them all. I pray that every single person within the sound of my voice would know your love for them in the middle of it all. They might experience, we together might experience your life in the middle of it all. We love you, Jesus. We praise you as the Lord of the Sabbath. And we pray all these things in your name. And all God's people said, Amen.
5: in A strong and mighty forces, Raise your voice
3: find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts and apps. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device in just a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now.
0: The following program is called Equipping the Saints, provided by ETS Ministry. Mm -hmm.
6: Hello, heart and soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundsted, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Well, on the front of your bulletins, there's a verse quoted, and it says, Good understanding produces favor. But the way of the treacherous is hard, and that word is really not treachery. When we think of treachery, that may have a different connotation in our culture. The word really could be translated unfaithful. And it is translated that in most every other version. The way of the unfaithful is hard. I was sharing earlier with some of the people in the body about my thankfulness for their serving. And how it would be impossible for the Lord to say, well done now, good and faithful servant, when you don't serve the Lord, right? The reality is there are those who are his who are faithful, and there are those who are his who are unfaithful, and certainly everyone who is not his is unfaithful. Now today we're going to see as we look in the book of Jonah, as we continue our look there today, we're going to take a look at an unfaithful servant. An unfaithful servant that God gives us a picture of in His Word as something to expose maybe our unfaithfulness and our attitudes so that we would be corrected and made more like Christ, that we would be faithful, that we would walk in the context of the joyous blessing and privilege of serving the living God. Now today we're going to see what happens when believers disobey God. Now, I'm not saying this is the only thing that happens, but this is one example of what God does to a disobedient servant. And I believe we're going to gather some lessons today from the life of Jonah. Would you turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1? And we're going to just review the context for a moment, and then, Lord willing, we're going to make it through verses 4 through 17. We'll see if we can get through that. But... Let me briefly share the context of the book of Jonah. The last two weeks I've shared it in depth, so if you want to know more of that context, feel free to go and get the CDs and listen to that. So I'm going to just skim right through it. But first of all, we need to recognize that the book of Jonah is a true story. It is about a real prophet as declared in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 24 and 25. It is not simply a fish story. It is not an allegory. It is a true story. And most importantly, besides the Word of God declaring that, we see the Lord in the Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ declaring that it was a true story, not an allegory, not a parable. And I'm going to read this for you in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And folks, boy, that just describes churches these days, doesn't it? We want to come, we want to see stuff happen, right? Well, the Pharisees came and said, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It's about Christ and Jonah's being in that whale pointed to Christ's death ultimately. The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation in the judgment and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. He's speaking of himself. Jonah is a true story. Jesus Christ declares the truth of the whale and Jonah being in the belly of the whale and also the truth of the repentance of the Ninevites who will stand up in the judgment proclaiming against that Pharisaical generation that rejected Christ. We also saw in Luke 11 a parallel passage saying the same thing. Jesus declared this to be a true story. Okay, so from the Word of God, we need to recognize it's a true story, a true account. It's not a parable. It's not a metaphor. Now, I've shared in the past few weeks two things that we need to understand, and I'm going to briefly review them. We need to understand Israel at the time of Jonah, and we need to understand Nineveh at the time of Jonah. Israel, by and large, was disobedient on the way to exile. They were God's people, but they were disobedient And it's important to realize this because I believe Jonah typifies Israel's attitudes as they are very close to being taken into a brutal exile in which many would be slaughtered in the midst of God's discipline. On the surface, Israel was fearing Yahweh. Maybe some of you on the surface claim the name of Christ, but God is taking you on the road to discipline. They were on the surface saying, we follow the living God, we follow Yahweh, we follow and fear Him. But yet they were arrogantly and continually disobedient to the commands of God as the prophets throughout Scripture portray their position before God and proclaim that they need to repent. Now remember, because of the son of David Solomon, because of his sin, we see the kingdom is divided into two kingdoms, north and south, in 931 B.C., Israel and Judah, ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south, First Kings 11. And Scripture reveals that every one of those northern kings were evil. In Israel, they were all evil. And the southern kingdom, the majority of them were evil except for a few. And it is during this time of the northern kingdom that Jonah was around. And as I've shared before, he was... King Jeroboam II's contemporary around 793 B.C. to 758 B.C. And we have everything about him in 2 Kings chapter 14. Now, it's important to note that what is happening to Jonah is only about a generation away from the brutal exile of Israel by the Assyrians, the same people that God is calling Jonah to. Now, Jonah's name means dove, and he is called a prophet and a servant of God in 2 Kings 14. Now, certainly in this book, we're going to see not only a condemnation of Jonah, but ultimately, I believe, a condemnation of Israel at the time that they were so unlike God. So then Israel was God's people on the road to discipline. Well, what about Nineveh at the time of Jonah? Well, last week we saw they were a wicked, violent people. They were a violent, wicked people on the road not to discipline, but on the road to judgment. It's interesting that the historical accounts concerning the Assyrians may be tempting to study and they may be interesting because they do show how wicked the Ninevites were and the Assyrians were. But I don't think we need those accounts to understand how seriously wicked they were. I shared from Nahum chapter three, just a couple pages up concerning the Ninevites that Jonah would be called to preach to. Nahum chapter three, verse one. Woe to the bloody city completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. Not a good place to be when God says, behold, I am against you. I will lift up your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. And it will come about that when all who see you will shrink back from you and say Nineveh is devastated. God clearly relays what Nineveh was like they were a wicked and bloody people. And you can go later on to chapter 3 in Jonah we've looked at it already we'll look at it when we get there again and we see even in the repentance of the Ninevites they call out to the Ninevites to cease from their wickedness and their violence. The Ninevites were a wicked people and they were the enemy of Israel. The Ninevites would take the Israelites captive. Okay, so in a generalized context, Israel is spiraling in sin. They are on their road to exile. They are God's disobedient people. And then Nineveh and the Ninevites, the Assyrians, were on the road to judgment. Both were very close to these. So this leads us to what we're going to see today, I believe. And this is where Jonah comes in. And we're going to see lessons from the life of Jonah. And what happens when believers disobey God. So again, let's turn to the book of Jonah. We're going to review the first three verses and then we're going to look at verses 4 through 17 today, Lord willing. Now, if you'll remember last week, we looked and saw that God gave Jonah clear commands how to serve him and Jonah exerted great effort to disobey him. Verse 1 of Jonah, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship, and was going to Tarshish, paid a fare, went into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. God comes to Jonah, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, it is God's word, it is the word of Yahweh, Lord in your Old Testaments in large caps signifies Yahweh, it is the verb to be in the present tense, I am, when Moses asked what should I share your name as, he said I am, the self-existent one, the word of the Lord, the great I am, came to Jonah, and he was called to arise and go to Nineveh and cry or preach against it. We saw that last week. Nineveh is around the modern-day Iraqi town of Mosul. The remains are there. It was completely destroyed as God predicted. And we see from this text at this time it was an exceedingly great city, a three-days walk. If you wanted to walk through Nineveh, it would take you three days. This is a big city. Chapter 4, we see there were 120,000 of those who did not know the left hand from the right hand, speaking of small children. So obviously there was more than a half a million people in Nineveh. This was a big, big city. It was the capital of the superpower of the day. It was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Now, Nineveh was about 500 miles northeast of Israel, and God is saying, Jonah, get up, go 500 miles to Nineveh. Get up and go. And then what is he to do when he gets there? Proclaim or call out against it. He is to cry out against Nineveh. Well, why? the end of verse 2, for their wickedness has come up before me. We talked about this last week. God sees your wickedness. He sees your sin. No one gets away with anything. God will hold you to account for everything you have done. And it is true believers who in humility come together and praise the Lord because they know their wickedness has been forgiven. God sees the wickedness. And Nineveh was an unbelieving, ungodly group of people, and they were on the road to judgment, and God was saying, it's time. And maybe some of you, God, is saying, it's time. No more. It is appointed man once to die, and then the judgment And for Nineveh, their time was up here, and God was calling Jonah to proclaim against them. Nineveh, the bloody city full of lies, a spiritual harlot to the nations, including Israel. Nineveh was just like Satan, a murderer and a liar. A wicked, violent people. So God calls Jonah to go up and proclaim against it. That was Jonah's ministry. God, in His Word to Jonah, at this time, tells Jonah what to do. And as we see here, Jonah exerts great effort to disobey God. Verse 3, But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah rises up. He's to arise, but he arises up to flee rather than obey. He's a disobedient servant instead of going 500 miles to Nineveh he goes 2500 or attempts to desires to go to Tarshish which is 2500 miles away second kings 14 he was from Gath Hepher which is the Galilee area so he gets up and goes to Joppa which is a seaport about 45 miles southwest and he finds a ship he pays the fare and he gets on board and he's on his way away from what he says here the presence of the lord Now, Joppa was a seaport on the coast of the Mediterranean. And Jonah sets his heart to go the opposite direction and takes off and does it. And most likely at this time, Jonah got on a Phoenician ship. The Phoenicians were great seafarers of the day. They lived mainly in the territory which we would call Lebanon, but they had outposts and territories all throughout the Mediterranean. The Phoenicians dominated the Mediterranean Sea concerning cargo and shipping between the 9th and 6th centuries B.C., during this time where Jonah was. So Jonah went down. It was probably a Phoenician ship, ready, as we'll see later on. They threw off cargo, a cargo ship. Jonah pays the fare, and he goes on. Jonah goes down and pays. Jonah is working hard to disobey God. Folks, we usually accomplish what we set our minds to do in the flesh. We really do. Jonah set his mind to go to Tarshish rather than obey God, and he takes off and he does it, Right? He found a ship, paid to fare, got on board. And maybe there are some of you who are making great effort to disobey God also in the realm of serving. This is how Jonah's disobeying. He's not going out and doing some wicked things. He's actually disobeying God in a wicked sense in the sphere in which God has called him to serve him. Jonah is a servant of God, and he is disobeying in that sphere, and that's really important to realize. I'm not talking about generalized flesh-centered disobedience. Talking about disobedience in the sphere of serving God. Jonah was disobeying God in this area. He was to be his mouthpiece, but he went the other way. And our text says Jonah was ultimately fleeing from the presence of the Lord in the beginning of verse 3 and the end of verse 3. But what does that mean to flee from the presence of the Lord? Did Jonah actually think he could hide from God's presence? I think Jonah knew enough about the Lord that that wasn't what he was thinking. I think there's more to it. And when we looked at it last week, we went into chapter 4. And you can look down there a little bit in chapter 4. Now remember, we'll see today, Jonah chapter 1 disobeys God. A great storm comes. Jonah's thrown overboard, swallowed by a fish. Chapter 2, Jonah's prayer from the belly of the whale. Chapter 3, Jonah reluctantly obeys and preaches. The Ninevites get saved. Chapter 4, we see what's going on with Jonah. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He was angry that God saved the wicked Ninevites, greatly displeased him. And he prayed to the Lord. Now listen to this prayer. Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that thou art a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Jonah was fleeing from the sphere in which he knew God would use him, and he knew God's character. He didn't like it, but he knew God's character that God would relent if they repented and God would pull back his judgment from the very people that Jonah most likely hated and he was angry. So Jonah in his mind figures out well if I go somewhere else then God can't use me there. So he's fleeing in that sense from the presence of God. Folks, Jonah's angry. God saved the Ninevites but he wanted to forestall this salvation. Jonah's messed up. So I don't believe Jonah thought he could actually get away from God. Because on the boat later on, he says, well, I know this is happening because of me. He knows he can't get away from God. But he's fleeing from the presence of God in the sense that he wants to forestall what God has ordained to do through him because he didn't like it. So what's going on here? Jonah was leaning on his own twisted understanding rather than trusting and obeying God. He didn't understand that everything that God does is good. He did not believe that the salvation of the Ninevites would be a good thing. He even knew God would do it. Thus, I believe Jonah exhibited great unbelief concerning the nature of God as revealed in his word. Now, many of you might say, I would never try to flee from the presence of the Lord. And I say, oh, really? Jonah fled from the sphere in which God had called him to serve because he didn't like it. It displeased him. Don't we do that? God calls us in His Word to serve Him in a certain way around the body of Christ, and we may not like it, so we choose other places to be. Same thing. Some of you are displeased in what God has called you to do from His Word, and you are either tempted to be unfaithful or you are being unfaithful. We're all tempted. But we're going to see that if you are a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, God will discipline us for His good. In for his glory. Okay, so we come to our passage now, which we're going to look at today, where I believe next we see that Jonah foolishly flees, but now God puts His heavy hand of discipline on him, and the Lord brings a deadly storm upon Jonah. Jonah chapter one, and I'm going to start again at verse one. The Lord, the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, "Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before Me." But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And here we go, verse 4. And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid And every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Notice what God does in response to Jonah's disobedience. Verse 4, and the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. He brings upon this terrible storm on the ship, and the ship is about to lose it. It's about to go. The text says, the Lord, the I am, the self-existent one, hurls or throws or casts a great wind. So there was a great storm. That's pretty easy to understand. It was a great tumult. The sea was so bad, the storm was so bad, the ship was about to break up. God was disciplining Jonah to within an inch of his life. There are some on the road to judgment, and there are some on the road to discipline. And Jonah was on the road to discipline, just like Israel, and God did discipline him. Now the interesting thing, Jonah being a Jew and one of the prophets would have had an understanding of Solomon's writing, where the Lord God shared through Solomon in Proverbs the truth concerning what he does with those whom he loves. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11, Jonah would know this, he would have this, but maybe he has forgotten it. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11. It's in the middle of your Bibles, basically. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof.